the expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks and it inspired damn near the whole rap game. Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Christ. It's, it's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Robers, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Filmography, a Consequence podcast. I am Consequence of Sound film editor Dominic Suzanne Mayer, and we will be talking about the films of Wes Anderson to kick things off. We're still a couple weeks out from the release of Isle of Dogs. That's actually premiering at South by Southwest as you're listening to this. And today I'm joined by Allison Shoemaker and Caroline Sita. Hey. Hello. Here on Filmography, we're going to be presenting the podcast as an offshoot of Consequence of Sound's popular dissected feature in which we meticulously pick apart the filmography of a certain director. At one point, we were going to talk about Steven Spielberg, and then I realized that starting a podcast series with one of the greatest American filmmakers of all time was a really bad idea. So instead, <laughs> we're going to talk about another great American filmmaker who's made way fewer movies. But these are movies we can also pick apart for many more hours than we're going to here. But we're going to try to give you the quickest possible road into the wild, weird, wonderful world of Wes Anderson. That was some quality alliteration, and I'm super <laughs> proud of myself. For the weekly topic, we're going to talk the comedies. And over the next few weeks, we're also going to talk about his dramatic work and then some of his dreamiest work. But today, we're going to focus on Anderson the Humorist, the eloquent, overgrown child. Now, I want to open up the floor to both of you. What to you makes a Wes Anderson joke? Meticulous planning, both in world and out of world, I think. He likes to have his characters meticulously plan things. And then very clearly he as a filmmaker likes to meticulously plan his films. I agree. I think there's also a, a frankness to his humor. Um, it's very matter of fact. It's presented as is um, without a lot of flourish or ta-da. Um, I'm thinking specifically of the moment in Moonrise Kingdom when the dummy sort of jolts up out of Susie's bed and the kid screams. It's not, there's no like zoom in to the crazy eyes. There's no dramatic music. It's just the dummy pops up and the kid screams. Um, and so there's plenty of room for us to laugh. And um, it's sort of the, the filmmaking equivalent of presented without comment. 
And I really like that because a lot of his jokes are presented with this very flat visual and stylistic affect, which I think is a crucial aspect of how a lot of it's presented because he's known for very much a deadpan kind of comedy. But there's also he's and we'll talk about this a little more when we get to the cinematography of his films. But the visual joke is huge when it comes to Anderson. And to that point, it's really interesting that one of his known major aesthetic influences, and you can especially see it in how he presents comedy a lot of the time, is Peanuts, Charles Schultz's comics and cartoons in particular. And not only has he reused audio cues from Peanuts in more than one of his movies, but you'll also find, I think, that there's this very flat slice-of-life way and I mean flat in the most complimentary way possible, but he's very straightforward in how he presents comedy in this really interesting way. And I think that's not just visual as well. Watching the films that we watch for this podcast, when you look at these ensembles, it sort of feels like everyone is the straight man and also no one is the straight man. Everyone is sort of on the same deadpan level. And I think a lesser in in a lesser filmmaker's hands that could end up being either too wacky or too boring but he finds a really nice tone in which to present this world in which everyone is equally weird and also equally deadpan no i'd absolutely agree and there's so i'm going to be drawing throughout this podcast series pretty heavily on matt zoller sites the wes anderson collection which is a lengthy and incredibly well thought out and presented set of interviews that Zoller Sites conducted with Anderson leading up to Moonrise Kingdom. And one thing he notes in talking about Peanuts with Anderson and about Charles Schultz's work is Anderson observes that the best Charlie Brown usually gets is a glimmer of something after the total defeat. And I think that glimmer is kind of that space in which Anderson's movies function by and large. Yeah, there's kind of a melancholy quality to both the Charlie Brown world and to the Wes Anderson world, I think. Yeah, you can see, um, certainly not every character, but a number of characters, like um, in Rushmore, maybe Dirk Calloway, sitting behind a a self-constructed plywood booth that says psychiatric help five cents, right? Like, that makes perfect sense in Wes Anderson's world, where there's... um, this glimmer of sadness and loneliness that actually makes it all kind of funnier, but also breaks your heart a little. Absolutely. And like, it's, it's comedy about heartbreak, which seems as good a segue as any into talking about the films we're going to be discussing today. And the first of them is going to be where it all began appropriately enough with bottle rocket, which is a movie that we kind some of us, on this episode kind of came around to discovering very recently. I would like to posit, if nothing else, that Bottle Rocket is never anyone's first Wes Anderson movie, I would argue, except for people who are around in the late 90s to see him from the beginning. It was really interesting to go back and see it. Um, I had never seen it before this podcast, and I was glad to get the chance to, because it really does feel like Quite different than his later films, especially visually, but I think thematically, it feels like it really is laying all of the groundwork that he would go on, that he, you know, <laughs> continues to go on and explore for the rest of his career. Yeah, I um, I saw Bottle Rocket around the time of Royal Tenenbaums, 
Um, and his visual style has become so recognizable at this point that seeing just little glimmers of it in Bottle Rocket, the occasional shot that's almost but not quite a Wes Anderson shot, some that are obviously Wes Anderson shots but in a sea of things that don't look quite so distinctive, um, is, a, is really fun. It's like uh, Easter eggs. Uh, it's as though somebody else shot this movie with a bunch of little tiny Wes Anderson references in it. Um, but Caroline's absolutely right that what's going on emotionally um, and tonally is very much in line with the films that would come later. Well, and I think it, I mean, I think you would both agree it's a remarkably accomplished debut as much as anything. I mean, it has definitely some of the hallmarks of quote unquote, the auteur's debut feature, but at the same time, it is already kind of a confident singular vision unto itself, given the fact that it was made with, at the time, a pair of handsome unknowns named Owen and Luke Wilson. And at one point in the Wes Anderson collection, Matt Solar Sites observes that, and I'm quoting here, it's still his loosest, most relaxed feature. A friend of mine once said that it felt like the third or fourth picture from a director who'd had a couple of big successes and felt confident enough to put away the oil paints and doodle in a notebook. Like, it almost feels like someone far more established messing around and seeing what would work. And what's really wild about it to me in particular is that it was birthed from a short film featuring the same principal trio, and yet that short film got Sundance traction and studio attention and all kinds of things. Bottle Rocket, the feature, was declined by Sundance and every other major film festival and kind of unceremoniously dumped by Sony after the test screenings went unexpectedly poorly, which I can absolutely see to an end where a mid-1990s audience might not respond particularly well, but it's strange to me that in an era where the shaggy, ambitious first indie feature was kind of your road to Miramax fame and glory. I was surprised by how much I liked Bottle Rocket. I didn't quite know what to expect going in. I feel like it's often sort of talked about as being slightly separate from the Anderson canon, maybe just because it didn't find that success right away. Um... But I think you're right, Dominic, that it does feel very low key. I think a lot of times a first film can feel like a filmmaker taking everything they've ever thought about for the first, you know, 20 something years of their life and cramming it into a film. And it doesn't feel like Bottle Rocket is exactly doing that. It is a little bit more low key. And I think that does feel like a certain kind of confidence but also, I could see someone watching this film and not quite clicking into the tone and finding it a little bit boring. So I guess I do sort of understand why it didn't quite find its audience now. But I think especially knowing what Anderson would go on to do, it's almost more interesting to look at it in retrospect to see those themes that maybe weren't perfectly explored here, but that you can see that he's so interested in from this early age. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, when I saw this the first time, I thought, oh, okay, well, I liked that. And watching it, instead of having seen two Anderson films, having seen all of the other Anderson films that would come after, it makes a lot more sense. It feels like one piece of a canon that has some huge differences, obviously, but this through line of vulnerability and sadness and of people being more complicated than you think they are initially, um, 
And that is absolutely true of all of the main characters in Bottle Rocket, with the possible exception of James Caan. Um, <laughs> so I, uh, yeah, I was really surprised by how much it spoke to me um, now that I'm better acquainted with Anderson's filmography and now that he's gone on to make these other things. I think it makes Bottle Rocket look that much more thoughtful and precise and um, rich in retrospect. And I would absolutely agree, and I think it introduces one of Anderson's key comic concepts as well, which is the shaggy, unassuming dude with dreams of delusional grandeur, which is a theme he returns to over and over again in his work. And the characters get definitely get more abrasive. I, I don't want to go too much down the life aquatic path this week, but you get protagonists eventually like Steve Zissou, who are genuinely cruel people in a lot of ways. Whereas with Bottle Rocket, Dignan might be a criminal, but he's kind of just a lovable, hapless dope as well. <laughs> Yeah, Dignan definitely feels like a Wes Anderson character. I was surprised the most by Anthony, who I think might be, who's Luke Wilson's character, who I think might be the most normal character who's ever been in a Wes Anderson movie. I think he's the one that escapes that rule of everyone being um, equally the straight man and equally not. Like, he actually feels like a traditional straight man and, and someone you could imagine existing outside of a Wes Anderson film. And that was really interesting to see. And I really, I mean, this, the main takeaway I had from Bottle Rocket was that I just love Luke Wilson and I wish I saw more of him because I think he really anchors this movie and gives it a grounded heart that I think Wes Anderson films always have a lot of heart but it's usually in this more heightened way and it was interesting to see a movie that felt like it actually existed almost 100% in the real world um, but still with those Anderson touches. I was also struck by how normal Anthony seems, and I don't want to jump ahead to Rushmore too quickly, but I think what's interesting is that, though it's a much smaller role, the same can be said of Luke Wilson's character in Rushmore, Dr. Peter yeah. Flynn, who just feels like a person who stumbled into this extraordinary story happening around him and is kind of befuddled but enjoying the ride um and that's a little bit what like anthony feels like when dignan comes to him at the 75 year plan he's just kind of okay with it and he's he acts kindly when he can and experiences things in the way that one of us might if we were suddenly dropped into one of these universes and that's the thing. It's one of the few Anderson films, perhaps the only one, aside from another we'll get to in just a second, where it feels like it could function in this reality. And after Bottle Rocket, I argue you don't really see the real world as we understand it truly start to encroach in on a movie again until maybe Grand Budapest Hotel, hmm. because they often function in this heightened reality. But Bottle Rocket, and partly because of the circumstances of its making as an Indian Texas... It feels it feels very much like a movie from this reality instead of the weird Anderson reality. He'd start to build more and more with each subsequent feature. And I really like that about it. I think that was the biggest surprise and in some ways the biggest delight. And that it I think a character like Dignan is almost more interesting in this real world context than he would be in something like Moonrise Kingdom, where everyone is so heightened, so no one quite stands out as much. And here you get to see, I think sort of the comedy and the tragedy of Dignan are both heightened by being in a real world context and specifically by being juxtaposed with Anthony. You know, I think that, that might also be my favorite Owen Wilson performance, um, which, 
you know, Owen, I think both Wilson brothers are very engaging on screen. And obviously Owen Wilson's contribution to Wes Anderson's filmography is hugely significant in a completely different sense outside of his acting. But um, there's something about his jubilance at planning and his reckless disregard for reality that feels very sincere uh, and I it, I have a hard time picturing another actor pulling it off quite so well, particularly the ending when he's describing his um, his false escape plan before saying, isn't it funny that you were in the loony bin and now I'm in jail? Um, it, there's something about it that I find very moving. And I don't know if you took... God, I'm trying to think of who else could even possibly be cast in such a role. I mean, even if you flipped them, if that was Luke mm-hmm. and Owen was playing Anthony, I don't think it would work quite as well. Um, it's it's just a really great performance from him. Um, and I was really glad to revisit it and sort of reevaluate it with um, with a new perspective. Absolutely. I don't think anyone could deliver the line, they'll never catch me, man, because I'm fucking innocent, quite like Owen Wilson does. Which is also a great, great piece of Anderson dialogue. I think there's a nice meta quality, too, to the fact that they are real-life brothers, but they're not playing brothers. And I don't know how you would read this film if you didn't go in knowing that they were brothers, but I think that that's really interesting. So much of Anderson's work for me is about men looking for friendship and role models. And I don't know, that meta quality just adds to that theme in a really interesting way absolutely and i think if bottle rocket is a personal feature about anderson but also about the wilsons and just kind of this ramshackle feature by a bunch of people giving it their best shot then that's a great segue into rushmore which despite just the two-year gap from 1996 to 1998 is such a massive leap forward for Anderson, both comically and stylistically, that it's hard to even know where to start. I feel like in the case of Rushmore, where Bottle Rocket posits itself very much as a heist movie, albeit a heist movie that's much more humanistic than most heist movies ever bother being, Rushmore is a much broader emotional drama. And I'll get to this a little more when we talk cinematography later, but I think using anamorphic lenses and just expanding to this kind of widescreen scale for this, in a lot of ways, very muted, very human story, ends up creating a kind of grandeur that really, really works for that movie in particular. Because Anderson's been quoted as talking about how I just always loved it when I went to movies and it was bigger. And I really like that because I think in the case of Rushmore, you manage to amplify the melodramatic teenage emotions of Max Fisher in a way that feels really true to the movie. I think that is a great point. And to that end, I would like to tip my hat to Mary Gail Arts and Barbara Cohen, the credited casting directors on Rushmore. Um, And I'm sure as we go into this series as a whole and subsequent episodes, and certainly in this episode, we'll spend a lot of time talking about how great the casting is for Anderson's films um, and how nimbly he and his casting teams are able to find people that fit into this world and get interesting performances out of them, even when their style might otherwise be sort of different. Um, But the casting in Rushmore is so top notch 
and uh, particularly Jason Schwartzman making his debut in this movie is just such a find. Um, he's so perfectly cast in this role and it's incredibly difficult to imagine anyone else doing it. As always, grain of salt because who knows with IMDb trivia, but according to IMDb, Elijah Wood auditioned for this role. Can you even imagine Rushmore with Elijah Wood playing Max Fisher? Because I cannot. <laughs> I've seen Rushmore a lot over the years and I'll admit that like having once been a young teenage man it's a movie that just like reaches out grabs you by the collar and like demands you relate to it because everyone can do it and I think the fact that Jason Schwartzman genuinely comes off as a gawky teenager not quite comfortable in his own skin despite being all projected confidence that's a high wire act that a lot of actors could not pull off and it's kind of amazing how well he executes it so I had a specific reaction to Rushmore the first time I saw it which was years ago and I was curious if I would have the same reaction now and I did which is that I find it almost impossible to watch Rushmore as a comedy. And I actually find it a deeply unsettling movie that I don't, in a way that I don't think I'm supposed to, I think I am supposed to lock into it in a comedy as a comedy and I can't do that. And so I end up having a very unpleasant viewing experience of it that I don't think speaks to the film like, there are a lot of elements of the film that I find successful, especially I can see intellectually what it's trying to do. But for me, this is the one Anderson film where I just can't lock into the tone that he's going for. And so I feel, in a way, Dominic, that you're saying you sort of relate to it directly. I have almost the exact opposite response and that I have a very hard time, like, personally relating to this film. I, and I'm really interested in that. Would you be willing to expand a little bit on why that is? Yeah, sure. So I think that I want this film to either be, like, I think it is intentionally trying to be unsettling at times. Like, we're supposed to be watching Max really struggling to figure out how to be, a, you know, a functioning adult going from an awkward teenager into an, a functioning adult. But I think I either need the film to be more heightened in a way, like more Moonrise Kingdom-y so that it is grounded in this heightened world so that I don't feel like afraid when Bill Murray is driving a car whose tire, whose um, brakes have been cut, or I need it to be more grounded, more bottle rockety so that I feel like I'm understanding Max sort of more as a real person. And right now, at least for me, it's sitting in between those two wor worlds in a way that I find very uncomfortable. And especially on this rewatch, I was like, Max Fisher is, Andrew Kananen. Like, this is a man that will grow up to be a serial killer. It's very <laughs> difficult for me to just watch and think like, oh, what a quirky little kid. Um, more so towards the end, I think that's when I can relate to him a little bit more or find him a little bit more charming. But in the beginning, in the middle, I find him to be sort of an upsetting character to watch. And I think it's because he doesn't feel quite like a 15-year-old to me. And I mean, Jason Schwartzman was only 17 when he made this movie, so he was a teenager still. But there's something about the difference between being 15 and being 17 that I think if this was a film that had a younger cast, a la Moonrise Kingdom, maybe I would find his behavior less unsettling. But I, I don't know. He's, he's uncomfortable for me to watch. 
Well, and I will say, like, I think that's super valid and it does get into something I wanted to explore a little bit, which is like there is a discomfort to his relationship with Rosemary Cross in particular, Mm -hmm. which is something we can get to in a bit. But there's also something really unsettling about even the dynamic between him and Herman. To me, I think one of the key lines in the film is when Max fakes a car crash to sneak into Miss Cross's house and she's kind of wiping the fake blood off him and she just looks at him and goes, you and Herman deserve each other. You're both children. It's one of the harsher takes on this that Anderson's ever offered, but his protagonists, to your earlier point, Caroline, his protagonists are often like young men struggling to find a sense of self, but I think he also doesn't quite get enough credit all the time for writing these really biting takes on certain kinds of vicious, narcissistic men, old and young alike. Because you see that with Royal Tenenbaum. You see that with Steve Zissou again. There's always that char- there are always characters, particularly men, hovering around in his films who are really kind of terrible to the people around them. And I think Max Fisher is one of the more pronounced examples of that because Max is, and I really like your point there, Max... If he goes a different way, Max could be a really terrifying guy. I mean, he is oblivious to the emotions of most of the people around him. He has, I mean, he lies through his teeth to Dirk until he realizes that he's lost his friend. And it basically costs him his entire lifestyle as he ever knew it, trying to pursue somebody who was never going to be with him. And I do really like that line from Rosemary where she critiques Herman and Max but I think then the film undoes that by at the end having her basically give both of them their blessing like it wants to make that biting critique but then at the end it wants you to think oh this is just a lovable comedy and I think that's what I'm saying if it was more if it was darker and it leaned into that more and it did commit to that critique I think I could connect to it more but the fact that it wants to sort of have it both ways that's the line that I'm really struggling with that's something that I struggle with too there's um there's this feeling at the end of Rushmore that I think is really lovely that Max has somehow figured out what an asshole he is and how grievously he's hurt the people that he cares about. And I do think he cares about them sincerely, not so much Rosemary, especially in the first half of the film. But I think once he realizes how the extent of the damage he inflicts on her life through his own sense of entitlement, that there's a journey there. Um, and I, that is a satisfying moment. That experience is satisfying to me. But I don't feel like Rushmore actually sees Max put in the work. It's a, as though he wakes up one day and decides that he's going to right those wrongs. And it's hard to actually track how that happens. We can watch it happen, but the why is, uh, is less present. Um, and if I have a frustration with Rushmore, that's what it is. Because I also find his behavior, um, particularly towards Rosemary, extremely unsettling. And I think that we're supposed to, but I don't know that a lot of the people who revere Rushmore tend to take that view. I, I hear people talk about Rushmore as though it's this sort of wistful, um, romance thwarted romance and i don't think that that's what this story is at all um 
but I'm not sure if maybe my reading is too generous or if it's I'm if my own perspective is sort of skewing how it is that I'm viewing the movie. I don't know. Does that make any sense? Well, I think we are supposed to find him. Definitely we're supposed to find Max unsettling, but I don't think we are supposed to find him as unsettling as I personally do. And I don't quite know if that is just a reflection of my personal experience or lack of personal experience of being a 15 year old boy in this case. Um, or if it, if I do want to sort of place that on the film shoulders for not quite delivering on that. Um, but like the scene where he goes to kiss her, there's something where, and she sort of has to fight. I mean, she literally has to fight him off. I think if that scene was with an, someone who looked more like a child, I would find that less unsettling than I do. But there's something about Jason Schwartzman being this precocious sort of mature adult looking, you know, quote unquote, 15 year old, real life, 17 year old, that makes that seem like threatening in a way that I think if it was pitched slightly differently or with a slightly different actor, it might be charming or silly or unsettling in a funny way. Whereas I just find it like genuinely unsettling. And I think there's something to be said for that. The only thing I would argue, and and not even to disagree, but more just to throw it in hand in hand with that, that scene in particular, I think, is a really interesting illustration of what Anderson's driving at with Max Fisher as a character about this idea he's simultaneously hyper adult for his age and deeply, profoundly immature. Because if you notice... The only time I would argue that Max truly seems like a kid in that whole movie is her aggressive rebuke to him in return, where she flips the script on him in response to him trying to do that, and she just hits him with this brazen adult kind of sexuality that he immediately blanches and shuts down in the face of because it's this stark reminder he thinks himself grown and he is still a child in a lot of fundamental respects. And there are moments where that idea is successful for me. I don't think it quite works in that scene in particular, but I I do think towards the end of the film, once we see Max sort of get over this heightened phase he was in a little bit and settle down and realize it's okay to just be a teenager, that's when I, I do find him more genuinely charming. I think the turning point for me is probably the scene where he's sitting by his mom's grave and Bill Murray comes to visit him and... They have that she was my Rushmore, she was mine to exchange. That feels like the max I can lock into a little bit more, relate to a little bit more, just enjoy as a character a little bit more. So I don't want to totally write him off as being unsuccessful. And I think you're right, Dominic, that the it, it is interesting to watch him navigate that line of pretending to be more adult than he is. But I don't know. For some reason in the first half of the movie, it just doesn't work for me that way. There is, and we'll circle back to this in a moment, but there's a meanness to the comedy of Rushmore for sure. Particularly in, as you mentioned, the entire break-cutting beekeeper montage set to The Who I mean, it's it's funny in the way that Wes Anderson's stagings are just visually funny, but there's also a really bitter edge to a lot of the laughs in this film. For sure. So when I'm watching something like Moonrise Kingdom, I'm never, as an audience member, I'm never afraid for the characters because it's such a heightened world. Um, I'm not afraid that they're going to fall off a tower and get struck by lightning and die. Um, whereas in Rushmore, I genuinely feel... A terror that I don't know if I'm supposed to fear or not when when the brakes are cut and the car is going out of control. I don't know if I'm supposed to think, haha, how silly. This is a sort of 
fantasy world where nothing bad can happen or if I'm supposed to feel the like, oh my God, if this happened in the real world, this would be a truly terrifying thing for someone to experience. And and maybe the film is intentionally trying to make me bounce between those two worlds and, and I'm saying this is a flaw, but it's actually, you know, the point. Um, but for me, I, I don't like that uncomfortable quality of not quite knowing where the film is sitting. Well, and I think that's actually a really great segue into Moonrise Kingdom then, because if Rushmore takes place in a heightened reality, Moonrise Kingdom swings into full-blown unreality. I mean, I mean, tabling the fact that New Penzance Island doesn't actually exist, so Anderson is essentially building an elegy for nostalgia in a time that existed, but a place that didn't at all. But as always, it's a version of a place that could have existed. There's still that root of truth. It's just where Rushmore is, say, 80% truth to 20% surrealism. Moonrise is a dramatic swing in the opposite direction. Yeah, but at the same time, Moonrise is so emotionally honest. Like, it's, to me, this Moonrise is one of my very favorite Anderson films. Um, it's my favorite of the three we're discussing today, and it's not close um, because it's it makes you long for a childhood that has never existed for anyone. No one has ever had a childhood like this, but it feels like you did, and maybe you slept through it, or you dreamed it, or it was some other version of you on some other planet, and you were there, and you did these things, and you saw Snoopy get shot, and you hung out on the inlet and you slept in the tent and you saw your mom sharing a cigarette with the police chief and all of that. Um, it feels like it's, it, it was yours somehow, but it's not, and you can't get back there. And I'm not sure what witchcraft he does. He employs to make that possible. Um, I think some of it again comes down to really remarkable casting, but, um, where the, Obviously, it's stylistically so much more heightened. It takes the things that we see in Rushmore and dials them up to 11. But I find a kernel of something that I can relate to and something I can latch onto and something that hurts with almost every character in the film. And there are so many characters in this film. And I think, like, one of the hard hardest parts of assembling this entire podcast as a series was separating the films into genre because they all exist at their own intersections of a couple different genres from film to film and moonrise kingdom in particular like if we're talking about brittle comedy with rushmore moonrise kingdom has a similar edge but it that edge is much more wistful arguably because even some of the funniest moments in the film like i think one of the great compositions is sam opening the tent the morning after their inlet runaway together to see bill murray charging at him disheveled that joke is hysterical but there's also something really sad about the real world coming in to invade now granted this is also a film that goes into full-on magical realism around the same time Sam gets hit by lightning. But just the same, it's still a film where you are you feel like you're watching a moment in time pass by. And that's something that film, uniquely as a medium, can accomplish. And I think Anderson, in particular, is really good at it here. I have to say, Dominic, I was so glad that the theme that you had set up in advance, the theme for these three films, was going to be the comedies. Um, because I think I... 
there's such a cult around Wes Anderson and dissecting his work and and, and putting all this meaning into it, which I, I do think is there. But you phrasing this as the comedy, it gave me permission to just watch Moonrise Kingdom as a goofy comedy and not, it doesn't have to be this amazing piece of filmmaking that encapsulates the entire human experience um, through this auteur artistic lens. It can just be a funny, silly, wistful, melancholy movie. Um, and I think that really, I did enjoy Moonrise Kingdom the first time I saw it, but rewatching it now, I think I enjoyed it even more because I sort of just gave myself permission to laugh at it and not try to take it too seriously. And I think that might kind of be the ideal way to watch it because then the moments of humanity sort of are nice surprises rather than feeling like you're just waiting for them to happen. Well, and I definitely think there's a much higher concentration of comedy from minute to minute of Moonrise Kingdom than a lot sure. of his other films because they're just, I feel like this is the perfect synthesis of latter-day Wes Anderson where there are these really moving adult moments um, it has one of the best Bruce Willis performances ever, which we'll come back to. But I also think that just blow for blow, it is one of the funniest damn movies he's ever made, if not possibly the funniest. Because I think there are just there are so many mar little marginal jokes that work. It has some of the best line readings in any of his movies. And I think all around there is like a genuine speed and wit to it that kind of belies it being for all of his meditations on childhood and adulthood and all of these recurrent themes in his work. This is the movie outright about children. And I think it really works in that respect and not like Tenenbaums with arrested children, but literal children. And here I find the the sort of distance to watch these kids do wacky things but f and be able to laugh at them that I don't feel with Rushmore. Like with Max, I don't feel like I'm, I'm at a distance where I can just sort of be like, oh, ha ha, like how funny youth can be and how precocious children can be. And I don't know if that has to do with the ages of the kids in Moonrise Kingdom or the fact that it is a more heightened world. But here I totally connect to... I think the tone that I'm supposed to take this film and the way in which I'm supposed to view these children um, as being precocious and that being funny to both sort of laugh at them and laugh with them. I think that he, he creates that distance really well. I absolutely agree. And I think when we move on, we'll be able to kind of parse out how it goes about doing some of these things. But we've talked about the whole, let's get into breaking down the parts. And as with so many Anderson features, we have to start with the casting because the performances are what carries the tone every bit as much as Anderson's comic sensibilities and his screenplays. And since we just finish talking about Moonrise Kingdom, I feel like the best place to start is with Kara Hayward and Jared Gilman's work as Susie and Sam in the film, which I feel like are some of the best child performances of the modern era, hands down. They're so great. They, I mean, I would watch a whole film just about the process of casting them and directing them in this film because it really, it just feels like the perfect synergy of actors and, and Anderson style. I agree. Um, this is my one of my, one of my very best friends from college um, worked 
for years as a casting director and is now doing uh, actor coaching in LA. So uh, she made damn sure when I started doing this that I would always shout out casting directors because they work so hard and their work is largely sort of ignored and unseen. So the casting director for Moonrise Kingdom and for a huge percentage of Anderson's films is Douglas Abel. Um, he's also cast things like Francis Ha, Signs, Manchester by the Sea, two, uh, two actors from Moonriser, obviously also prominently featured in Manchester. Um, uh, he cast the upcoming TV movie of Fahrenheit 451. Caroline, you'll be delighted to know he's cast 31 episodes of Mozart in the Jungle. Um, all kinds of things. So this guy really knows his stuff. Um, but the kid casting and not just in the central couple in Moonrise is off the charts good. And, uh, Kara and Jared are so excellent, so honest, so, um, restrained in the way that Anderson films require while still packing so much underneath. And I think that's particularly true of Kara that when they showed up together in a cameo in Jim Jarmusch's Patterson, one of my favorite movies of the last several years, I almost burst into tears. Um, <laughs> so if you haven't seen Patterson, keep your eye out for the two of them. They crop up together and it made me gasp and filled me with joy and sadness all at the same time. Um, but a lot of child actors um, can either be coached to push too hard or instinctively push too hard. You can see them trying to be great. And there's none of that here. Um, that's also true of Lucas Hedges. It's true of basically all of the khaki scouts. It's true of Susie's br uh, brothers. They just are all sort of giving just enough, striking just the right tone. And, um, and obviously, Jared and Kara in particular are just remarkable. And I think it really adds a lot to the film to have actors who have that Wes Anderson cadence of delivery down so perfectly. Because one of the things that gets me about Moonrise, both as a comedy and as a more dramatic feature in in those moments, is how Sam and Susie feel like kids who are doomed to grow up into Wes Anderson characters. Hmm. And I think there's an interesting disconnect there where they, they feel like Anderson characters, but there is something really uninhibited and honest and beautiful about those performances that sets them apart from a lot of the broken children that characterize so much of his work. And you see that with the khaki scouts to a lesser extent, who are just a bunch of terrific one-scene, two-scene performers all around. One of my favorite sequences in Moonrise Kingdom is sort of right after Sam and Susie run away together and... Puppies, pandas, piglets, and more are all waiting to be saved in Pet Rescue Saga. Just match two or more blocks of the same color to clear the level and free those lovable pets. Remember to plan your moves so you don't run out. It's easy and fun to play, challenging to master, and a great way to bring a little color to your day. From the makers of Candy Crush Saga, King presents Pet Rescue Saga. Download it from the App Store or Google Play. One in two women were the wrong foundation. Which one are you? Get on the better-looking side of those odds with Il Maquillage. Using AI, Il Maquillage virtually shade matches you to the perfect foundation. Their foundation has over 50,000 five-star reviews thanks to its luxe lightweight formula. And with 50 shades, there's a flawless finish for everyone. Take the Power Match quiz to find yours at ilmakiage.com slash quiz. That's I-L-M-A-K-I-A-G-E dot com slash quiz. 
sort of surviving out, you know, for their first day out in the wilderness. And Sam's just so committed to doing all of these masculine, you know, hunting and fishing and orienteering and all of these things that he's learned in the khaki scouts. And Susie is just so blasé about it all in a way that I find so funny. And the reveal that she's brought along her kitten and all of the kitten food and her sort of just, she's, she clearly Sam wants her to be impressed by everything he's doing. And she is not not impressed, but she's not quite at that age where she's been taught by society that she has to sort of <laughs> compliment men a lot. And so she just yeah. reacts in a very genuine way, like, oh, okay, that's not that interesting, but thank you for telling me. Um, but it's never mean-spirited. Like, it feels very genuine from both of them, and neither of them are off-put by how the other reacts, because I don't think they've... Again, they have, they aren't quite old enough to know how, quote-unquote, you're supposed to react, so they don't think anything is off. And, and that's that distance I'm talking about. Like, we as the audience can laugh about that, um, as the characters themselves are, are very, very genuine, and they're not really playing it as a comedic moment per se, but we as the audience read it like that. Yeah. I, um, when you started talking about this, Caroline, I immediately thought of them, uh, sucking on the pebbles and they're yeah. both, like, he's doing it so diligently and she's doing it sort of curiously, but more haphazardly. And then, um, the deadpan delivery when he takes the pebbles out of his mouth and says, I brought water too. It's just, yeah. <laughs> it's so perfect. It's, um, it's so honest and you feel so grateful that these two kids, these two sad, lonely, scared, angry kids have found somebody that accepts them like that. I just think it's wonderful. Well, and that kind of extends to a lot of the performances in Moonrise Kingdom at large. And my other favorite outside of theirs has always been Bruce Willis, who we have all watched phone in a lot of performances over the last 10 to 15 years. I watched the fifth Die Hard and him trudging through as though he were shopping for groceries all the while. But the, Wes Anderson gets some phenomenal work out of him because he kind of taps into the exhausted vulnerability that's always lurking below the surface of the John McClane, Bruce Willis archetype. Because there's always this world weariness that was really endearing in Moonlighting. And here you have Willis as... I mean, as Susie describes him bluntly, that sad, dumb policeman. And there's more to him than that, but he really leans into that aspect in a way where when he cracks a joke, you want to crack up laughing just because you're almost relieved for him. It's interesting. I think Sam and Captain Sharp are sort of like the nicer <laughs> versions, more pleasant versions of Herman and Max in Rushmore. Like, it's the same idea of these two very differently aged, slightly sad outcasts finding each other. Um, but I think in Moonrise, which I do find to be a lot more explicitly comedic than Rushmore, it's sort of like a, a nice, softer version of that. Um, but yeah, there's a real sweetness there to their their relationship and the idea that they're both helping each other um, by coming together, that they're both giving each other this sort of grounded family that they didn't have before. Yeah, there's something that's obviously so striking about that image when they're dangling from the lightning struck bell tower um, that seems like a like a potent visual metaphor for what's happening in that final scene where it's so often not how life actually works out, but you want to cheer when you see sharp go for the full daddy warbucks ending, right? Like where you get this moment that 
doesn't often happen in real life where someone just becomes determined to keep this kid out of the system and finds a way with the help of two bickering lawyers to forge a relationship with him and sort of grab him back from the ledge of falling into this really dark place in our society. And then to have it literally end with the three of them holding onto each other and dangling by one foot is just really amazing. And I think if we're going to talk about like melancholic moonrise performances, we can do a twofer and talk about Bill Murray's Wes Anderson work, which there's arguably not an actor more associated with Anderson than Bill Murray at this point. Because I think in Moonrise Kingdom, he does a variant of his Rushmore performance, which is the more engaging of the two, partly because it's a much meatier role in a lot of ways. But I almost take Bill Murray as Susie's dad in Moonrise as this aftermath version of Herman Bloom, where he's already kind of given up. And he's just, as he puts at one point, waiting to be sucked into space by a hurricane. Whereas in Rushmore, I feel like that kind of invented both the Bill Murray, the modern Bill Murray performance, which he's done better in some places and a lot in general over the past 10, 15 years now or 20, because Rushmore is 20 years old this year, everyone. Oh, God. Yeah. Time is moving irreparably. But um, <laughs> I do think that Murray also kind of invented a signature Anderson delivery, which is sad-eyed reading of jokes on paper, which there's a lot of in Rushmore, but also pops into Moonrise fairly frequently. Yeah, I always think of this style, this Bill Murray style. I associate it so strongly with Lost in Translation, but obviously Rushmore did it first, and I don't know why that sticks in my mind more. Again, I think it speaks to that thing I was talking about with everyone sort of being the straight man, and it is really in-world. Bill Murray is not playing funny characters, but again, we, the audience, can find them very funny, and I think that's a that's a very successful comedic mode to be in, a tricky one to navigate, and they do it very well. Yeah, I, um, I agree with your point, Dominic, about the quote-unquote Bill Murray performance working better in some places than in others, but I don't know that I can think of... Uh, Wes Anderson appearance of his where he doesn't strike just the right tone and for all of their similarities there are also really potent and important differences I can absolutely see the similarities between Bloom and his character here um, but at the same time there's something about Bloom where you see him sort of enjoying his despair as he nears the end of the movie as he enters the like fully rumpled kid hating divorced face before he gets his hair cut um that here you know he doesn't in moonrise he doesn't seem to be enjoying it he's wallowing certainly but it seems less like um uh, it's less fuck it and more why isn't somebody gonna reach down here and help me i guess um so I think it's a great marriage of performer, director, writer, because they managed to find these interesting spaces to do this variations on a theme that they've been doing for, oh my God, 20 years now. I'm so old. Ooh. No, believe me, every time I look at the the release dates on some of these films as I'm putting these episodes together, my jaw just slumps down little by little. <laughs> but I also think like, 
Murray and Rushmore is a good example, but in all of these films, really, there's a physicality to these performances that's really appealing. We already talked about Owen and Luke Wilson and Bottle Rocket, but I think those are both a marvel of movement and underrated physicality. I think um, Max Fisher, I had mentioned earlier how he's very much a teenager in the guise of an adult because he still moves and walks and talks and functions like an affected teenager in every single way. And I think one of the things that's consistently really funny about Moonrise is the matter-of-fact adultness of the Khaki Scouts and of Sam and Susie and how, in a lot of ways, they come off as more composed than anyone else in the frame. You could even say that about Dirk Calloway and Rushmore as well. The kids precociously but also in a really honest way feel like they're better at trying on the guise of adulthood than so many of the adults on screen i think that's a great segue to talking specifically about jason schwartzman and moonrise as well because all of the things that caroline was saying about max fisher when we were talking about rushmore earlier seem to be dialed up in cousin ben he's so off-putting he's his behavior is so inappropriate. There, are, his actions are utterly indefensible, um, and you, I can't say that I like him. But at the same time, the net result ends up ultimately being pretty positive for them, um, which is just sort of baffling. Like that, it's not like his sequences are particularly long, um, but boy, are they potent, and it's. Impossible to imagine Max Fisher, the Max Fisher we know at the end of Rushmore, growing up to be that callous um, and that unconcerned about the safety of others. But it does feel a little bit like the Max Fisher at the beginning of Rushmore went and joined the Khaki Scouts and then just aged without changing at all. <laughs> it's interesting to talk about physicality in these movies because I think. A lot of times with like a traditional comedy, maybe you think of sort of out there physicality or over the top physical comedy or sort of like a lot of flailing around. And obviously Wes Anderson is so specific in his compositions and whenever anyone moves, it's so intentional. And I think Jason Schwartzman as both Cousin Ben and as Max, it's, you know, it's never like you're flailing around as a teenager and that's where the comedy is coming from. The comedy is coming from how still everyone is. And that's sort of the same with Sam and Susie as well. It's. I don't know, it's an interesting way to do comedy because I don't think it's what we traditionally think of as being comedic, but it does end up being comedic because Anderson's so good at, at presenting it um, in a in a very funny way. And we can get to that in a minute when we talk about form, but I feel like there is a certain, there's a way that bodies are staged in Anderson movies that are just inherently funny in this way that's kind of hard to understand or elaborate upon out loud, but that just hits you on a gut level. And to that point, I mean, things just like Frances McDormand wielding a bullhorn to corral her children in Moonrise Kingdom, I think is hysterical. And particularly the way that she just adopts drill sergeant poses whenever she's shouting them down. And how, for that matter, she kind of wrangles her husband in the same way. And I think um, there's also... I mean, there's those, his movies are littered with those little moments. But before we move on, one of the hallmarks of the Wes Anderson movie is, again, the one to two scene side character. So of all of these three movies, which is your favorite side character of the Wes Anderson ensemble? I mean, it would be easy to pick like 
12 of these, and I'm not sure mine is even technically a side character, but I just really love Ed Norton as Scoutmaster Ward in Moonrise Kingdom, who I think Ed Norton, I associate him as being a kind of angsty performer, and he's just so sweet and genuine and endearing in Moonrise and does not have a mean bone in his body. And he plays that so well. And I just love the scene where where he says, I'm a math teacher on the side. This is my full-time job. I think that's such a, a sweet and endearing moment. I, I find Moonrise in- interesting because I think, in a way, it almost feels like Scoutmaster Ward and Captain Sharp could be the same character. Like you could rewrite the script and just combine that into one thing. It's interesting to me that we have like both Bruce Willis and Ed Norton playing these sort of similar caring authority figures. But I think because Bruce Willis is there to take on the sort of harsher edges of that archetype, it just leaves Ed Norton to just be the most charming human in the world. And I love that. Well, like I said, I cheated and picked two, um, although I'm a little je- jealous of Caroline's pick because I agree that Ed Norton is just outstanding in Moonrise. Um, so I went ahead and picked Mason Gamble as Dirk Calloway in Rushmore. Um, with friends like you, who needs friends is one of my very favorite Anderson lines. Um, and I think his delivery is just so perfect. He's one of those kids that manages to land the tone perfectly um he's incredibly watchable um you get a little scared of him once he's so angry at max that you think about like oh the secrets he must know (laughs) um as though he's some sort of um a loose end political operative who's ready to turn tail and wreak havoc on the life of his superior uh, which is a strange thing to say about kids who are friends um so I think that he is just great and that character is so great and his reversal uh, as the person who somehow brings Max back into life really is lovely and um, one of the sort of kindest moments in a movie that doesn't have a ton of kind moments. Uh, but I could not go through this conversation without talking about how much I love Bob Balaban in Moonrise Kingdom as the narrator. Um, he's so funny. If we want to talk about physicality, every pose that he strikes in the introductions that we see is so funny. Uh, but I particularly love his last introductory moment when he's talking about the kids uh, sailing at 4.30 in the morning and the storm coming in and the way he's able to build tension with just the slightest amount of urgency in his voice where he's not totally detached for just about the first time, uh, I think is a hell of an achievement of both performance and direction. And um, he just adds so much to that film without having to do a whole ton. I love all of these. I feel like I could talk about side players just in these movies all day. I feel remiss to not talk more about James Conn and Bottle Rocket for one because he's just outstanding. But my favorite of these is the arguably one of the bigger breakout performances from Moonrise Kingdom, which was Lucas Hedges as Redford, one of the more villainous of the khaki scouts. Because even in just a small handful of scenes, Hedges just has screen presence of a kind where you could tell he's about to be a big, big deal. And then atop that, he has just, I mean, him getting punched in an open wound is hysterical, but I also think there's really, really something to be said for the value of just 
this one genuinely mean kid in what's a pretty nice on-screen world otherwise. He's genuinely cruel to Sam in a way in the way that kids are cruel to each other because kids are terrible to each other by and large. But I just think there's something really fun about having like a child version of that interference from the encroaching adult world. Yeah, the moment where he says uh, the moment where he says we've been deputized, it it's such a um, a Draco Malfoy moment. Like it makes me think about. Uh, apologies for bringing Harry Potter into this conversation about Wes Anderson, but it makes me think about the moment in uh, the fifth Harry Potter book when Draco Malfoy gets to gloat about being on the Inquisitorial Squad, um, where it's such a big deal, and he's so pleased with himself and drunk on the power it gives him, which ultimately results in the death of a dog. Um, He's just such a cruel little bastard, and knowing that he would grow up to give a series of empathetic performances um, in really wonderful movies makes it that much more delightful. Now all I want to see is Wes Anderson's Harry Potter films. <laughs> Me too. Oh my imagine? god, please. I honestly just feel like they'd all look kind of like the prison sequence from the Grand Budapest Hotel, but maybe that's just me. <laughs> I'd watch it. 100% would watch. Fantastic well, and Beasts it... and Where to Find Them Inside a Lovely Hotel in a Diorama-type setting. Well, and if we're bringing up dioramas, that is a perfect segue, thank you, Allison, into talking about the visual aspects of Anderson's films and Anderson's comedies in particular, because there is a very specific way that visual jokes in particular are framed in the Anderson world, and it sort of fluctuates from film to film here because we're covering such a wide swath of work. Because in Bottle Rocket, you have a lot of loose handheld photography. You have some of the Anderson hallmarks, like the the framings are there, but what Allison and I were both really noticing watching Bottle Rocket again together in preparation for this show was how... Some of those stark dead center framings are just a little off. He's using the peripheral thirds of the screen a lot of the time in ways that he doesn't really anymore. Or if he does, he's tethering them all around a central focus, which is missing from a lot of Bottle Rocket. But there's still things like there's a point where they're sitting on the bus early in the film and there's the 90 degree whip pan from the bus driver to Luke and Owen Wilson. And that whip pan has become one of the, the most recognizable Anderson hallmarks, if not the most so. And I think what really works in a lot of these films, to Allison's point about the diorama, is how composed so many of the images are, especially in Rushmore and Moonrise. Yeah, you can see the beginnings of it in Bottle Rocket, but you'll be looking at whatever frame he's composed. They'll be sitting in a in the motel or near the pool um, or in a diner, and Everything is obviously placed deliberately, but there's nothing that's quite symmetrical. Things are not quite centered. There'll be an element or two that maybe feel like they haven't been sort of curated in the way that his later films, you know immediately that everything is curated and everything is significant up to and including the very first moment that we see the lefty scissors um, in Moonrise. It's, um, It's so interesting to watch and see the glimmers of that. But then... As you say, there are these moments in Bottle Rocket where it all of a sudden it's a Wes Anderson movie. And I'm thinking specifically of when they're all doing target practice 
and we get the close-ups of the hands firing the guns that like quick stark brightly lit close-ups of just that perfectly framed uh hand firing a gun um that feels so anderson and uh that was one of the best things about revisiting that film for me was catching those little moments I really liked seeing him work in a less formally rigid way because I think the danger, at least for me with Anderson films, is that they become almost parodies of themselves. Like there's a reason that Wes Anderson is so easy to parody, obviously, and there's a lot of great ones out there. But I think at times I feel like there is a danger of you go in knowing what you're going to get visually, even as it's always a delight to watch. And I hope at some point, you know, later down the road, he sort of returns to a slightly, like, I would personally love to see him return to a more bottle rocket style, at least for a film and see what's that, what that's like now that he's moved on um, in his career, because I do think it's, I don't know, it's kind of nice to see him do something different, even though obviously this was the first thing he did. But I think he, you know, he's so known for that one type of look, and it's interesting to see him do something else. Well, and while... A lot of the rhythm comes from the editing and the assemblage of almost these staccato bursts of humor throughout where there's these, a lot of times it depends on a quick cut deployed to perfect effect. We'd also be remiss to not talk about Robert Yeoman's work who has worked with Anderson as his cinematographer on virtually all of his features and who is also kind of integral in setting up a lot of these gags because I talked earlier with Rushmore and we could say the same for some of Moonrise Kingdom as well using grand scale photography and comedy is something that just isn't done in film we don't essentially we don't shoot auteurist comedies and even people who are considered comedy auteurs are usually considered most so for their style of humor or their delivery than the actual composition in and of itself but i think that's crucial if we're talking about anderson's style of humor and maybe that's why something like moonrise kingdom maybe the first time i watched it i was less inherently pulled to just view it as a comedy and why i enjoyed it you know, even more so on this rewatch, because because you're right that it you, with a film that's so meticulously composed, you aren't used to thinking, like you said, Dominic, oh, this is a comedy. And so giving yourself that permission to find the comedy within the meticulous composition, I think, is a is a cool way to watch these films. Well, and I think the diorama aspect to circle back around to that also kind of gives his movies this rat in a maze feel that really, really works for screwball comedy. You see that most with Moonrise, but even like a few of the stagings of Rushmore, like I think one of the bits in Rushmore that always gets me every single time is just Dirk emerging in his wizard's outfit. (laughs) And in that... I mean, it's just a bunch of kids surrounding a slightly older kid and throwing rocks at him. But there's something so perfect about the staging of Max being cornered by children that I think is hysterical. And it's just one of a million examples you could cite of the Anderson Yeoman visual joke. And actually, to that point, what are your favorite visual... What if you can choose one, what's your favorite visual joke out of any of these three? Well, I'll go because mine comes from um, the first of Anderson's films. I just want to highlight, it's more of a um, physical comedy than a a composition comedy, but I love uh, in Bottle Rocket, there's a scene where Owen Wilson 
comes in on a motorcycle wearing a yellow jumpsuit and later gets called a little banana, which is also funny. But he, (laughs) you know, is trying to show off how cool he is. And so he wants to go to do a wheelie, but he can't actually do one. And so he ends up just having his feet on the ground and he's walking the bike, but lifting the the front wheels into the air. And it's just a very funny bit of physical comedy from Owen Wilson that isn't highlighted. Like I think other lesser comedies might want to highlight that moment more. And Anderson just keeping the camera where it is and just letting that unfold is I think where the the comedy really comes from. That is a great one. Um, I, this is not my actual selection, but because fate has handed this opportunity to me, I feel like I have to at least highlight this. Um, I love the moment in moonrise where we see the kitten's head peeking out of its basket and sort of magically looking around at all of the things around it without jumping out while they're on the inlet. Um, it, It, just makes me so happy the same is true of when Susie is posing for Sam and the kitten is kind of hanging out by your tummy um and the reason that I feel the need to bring that up is because while cats rarely do that kind of um cozying while there's stuff to be explored and messes to to get into my cat is currently sitting like right next to my hip and sort of tranquilly (laughs) peacefully watching me record this podcast so I just had to um tip my hat to that moment my actual choice however is a very early visual joke in uh moonrise kingdom uh which is roosevelt how the how's the lanyard coming along and then poor roosevelt says terrible and holds up his lanyard and we cut to a shot just of the lanyard which is about mm, maybe an inch of lanyard and then a giant ball of chaos and then a rabbit's foot it makes me laugh every time just thinking about it makes me laugh that whole opening sequence sort of tracking Ed Norton as he's checking in on all the scouts is just fantastic. And another one that I love in Moonrise Kingdom is when Sam escapes by cutting a hole in his tent, which I just find. And the moment where they're like, oh, the tent zipped from the inside as if, you know, they're in a prison and there was no other way he could escape. Like the seriousness, which with they all take the idea of a tent being a room mm-hmm. is just inherently hilarious. Yeah, to that me. he went full Shawshank. And then that's yeah. followed up when they zip the tent from the inside when they're on the inlet mm-hmm. and Bill Murray comes up and just lifts it off of them. Yeah. <laughs> that opening montage introducing the scout camp is fantastic all around. My personal favorite is just pest control and burning semance. There's <laughs> yeah. something about a child brandishing a small torch and yelling like he's in the military that I adore. But to complete the hat trick, my choice here is from Rushmore. And it's one of my favorite Wes Anderson jokes in any of his movies, which is just Herman on the phone with Max while he's stalking Rosemary Cross earlier in the film. And he's wandering across an elementary school's recess area. And as a little kid tries to shoot on a child-sized basketball hoop, Murray just stuffs him mid-conversation. And it's just, it is a bit that comes and goes and I have to pause the movie because I'm howling for air the whole time <laughs> I also love the tree falling over in Rushmore yes. when Max is like I was gonna have that tree fall on you and then the great button at the end that Bill Murray sort of breaks off a branch and the whole tree falls over is really fantastic uh, I also in Rushmore love um, Max getting clocked in the eye in the middle of the play at the end of the film and then getting up and going I'm, I'm okay I'm okay I love that yeah <laughs> If we're talking about the dramatics, 
of even some of the jokes here, that's as good a segue into any as our final category, which is the music and compositions of this trio of movies. And I feel like there's no other place we can start, especially with the early work, than with Mark Mothersbaugh, who has been as integral to the creation of like the Wes Anderson aesthetic in capital letters as anything. Um, at one point in the Wes Anderson collection, Matt Zoller cites Ann Anderson himself openly acknowledged that, quote, from Anderson here, the tone of the movie was not there until his music was there in acknowledgement of Mothersbaugh. And Matt Zoller cites earlier in the Rushmore chapter of the book points out, quote, from the instant the touchstone logo floats from screen right to screen left, backed by Mark Mothersbaugh's jaunty plucked violin score, the movie creates an aura of sly enchantment, end quote. And I think that really nails the feel of how these movies come off. And there's a lot more going on musically with Moonrise that we'll address in, in a moment. But I really feel like a lot of the tone of his movies comes from the playfulness with the slight or undercurrent of bite that comes from Mother's Boss work. Yeah, there's a, a sweetness um, that's not saccharine that I think is just perfect, um, a perfect match for what Anderson does visually. It feels uh, obviously highly composed, really thought out, meticulous, but also honest and matter of fact. And I think it's a credit to everyone involved that the music also feels very, really in all of these movies, it feels like a natural compliment. It's not pulling focus and it's not undercutting anything. Like it, as memorable and wonderful it is, as it is, it's also possible to just sort of get lost in these films without explicitly thinking about that. It's working on sort of a really nice subtle level. Um, so that complementary nature I think is really cool. Well, and I think, like, you start to see with Bottle Rocket the compositional beginnings where it's got, again, to borrow a phrasing from Matt Zoller Sites, the jaunty sound that's definitely present in Bottle Rocket. But I think with Rushmore, what's really interesting, at least sonically, is how there's the juxtaposition between kind of this elegant, eventually menacing score, because I do love when they start to experiment with a lot of very chambered chambered drum sounds as the film starts to grow more and more menacing as Caroline mentioned earlier but I also think the uses of pop music in that film really act as this interesting counterpoint and it kind of gives the film a punk feel almost that I feel like is a huge part of why Rushmore's become such a young film dude touchstone to an end because there's that montage that I mentioned earlier set to the who's a quick one while she's away but I also think using the kinks who pop up a lot in Anderson's work, but using nothing in the world can stop me worrying about that girl with Herman jumping into the pool early on. Anderson directly invokes the graduate that very much centers it as kind of a riff on the established canonical young man comes of age story. And I also think that when the film moves on to the Faces version of Ooh La La over the climactic dance, which is a great, great piece of staging for Anderson. He also 
kind of conjures up the, the wistful nostalgia around which so much of Moonrise Kingdom is built, but in this way that feels a little more emotionally honest and a little more of this world. Uh, Anderson has a really great sense of um, what tone can be taken from a song that's unrelated to the song's meaning. I feel like a lot of the time when filmmakers are uh, going to outside sources for their musical choices, um, it can often be too on the nose. There are certainly great filmmakers that uh, share this knack. Um, I think that Baby Driver is a recent example of a filmmaker knowing that you don't actually need what's happening in the song narratively to relate what's happening to relate to what's happening in the film narratively. It's just about the feeling and about any personal associations that someone listening to it might have. Um, and the Faces song is a great example of something that doesn't need to be narratively related to conjure the feeling you want from that scene of a sort of wistfulness and peacefulness and um, tranquility and content that um, does a lot of, it certainly doesn't do the work for the film, but really helps to hammer that particular point home. Well, and I think you get that particularly with Moonrise Kingdom, which is sort of the outlier in this category of discussion, because not only is Mother's Bond not part of the film, because that was instead Anderson's first collaboration with Alexandre Desplat, who'd go on to compose the, his score for the Grand Budapest Hotel as well. But there's some of Desplat's work in there offset by Benjamin Britten and Noise Flood which I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but that's how I'm going to pronounce it forever. <laughs> and that's much of the film narratively and stylistically is built around noise, flood, flood. I, I can't, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm five and this is really entertaining <laughs> to me, but he uses Britain's compositions in a really interesting way because much like mother, mother's boss quote, jaunty work, Noise Flood is a composition meant to be performed in churches, not in concert halls, about the Ark and Noah and the liberation of the animals from God's flood, which dovetails really nicely with where the film ends up going because it creates this sense of heightened emotion that Anderson usually tends to underplay in a lot of his work that it makes very literal. And I also think that juxtaposing that with these children's compositions by Leonard Bernstein that pop up recurrently throughout the film, where orchestras are being taken part and reassembled again, really works to drive home not only a lot of the film's themes, but just also kind of this gap between the severe, the severe life, life or death stakes of the film's climax with a lot of the childlike whimsy that comes before it. And we haven't explicitly said this um, yet, but obviously Moonrise is the only period piece that we're discussing today. And I do think that that is another reason it feels sort of set apart from the rest of the films. And I think the music definitely reflects that as well. Like that nostalgic quality we were talking about, maybe nostalgic for a time that never really existed. I think that the music captures and reflects that really well. Because it's a weirdly eloquent soundtrack for a movie about children. You don't usually see movies about kids with music that high-minded, which is the most Wes Anderson thing in the world. Yeah. Like, children who are basically adults is as core a theme as any of his. But I also think that 
there's a flutter to the film that's offset by kind of this ponderous dread of noise fluid that you hear throughout. Well, something I think is interesting about um, the musical selections is that I think there's an interesting parallel between the world of children's records that deconstruct classical music for children, um, of which there are you know, plenty, the most famous probably being the Peter and the Wolf records where you get to learn about all of the individual instruments because they're all a character and you can find recordings where someone will, the narrator will go through and sort of explain um, what all the different parts are. Um, but we tend to think of things like classical music, um, fine art, uh, certain kinds of filmmaking, obviously, as being things that are highbrow um, and not something that children would enjoy at all. And that doesn't have to be the case. When I was a kid, I was a giant Tchaikovsky nerd because I wanted to be a ballerina in addition to, you know, a garbage truck driver and an elevator operator and an opera singer and Annie. So um, that was one of my many chosen professions. And so I listened to a lot of Tchaikovsky. I listened to Sleeping Beauty and I listened to The Nutcracker and I, I listened to whatever I could get my hands on, really. Um, and a lot of my entry points were through albums like that. And I think that's an interesting parallel to what Anderson is saying about the way that we view children as though they cannot have adult emotions, as though they cannot be capable of profound feeling, as though their experiences are somehow less important because they're kids and they can't have this profound connection because they're kids and that's just not the case. Um, so I think that there's an interesting parallel there and it adds a sense of um, grandiosity and importance to a storyline uh, that in another filmmaker's hands could be treated as kind of cute and silly. Um, whereas here, Anderson approaches the relationship between Susie and Sam with bone-deep seriousness. It's a funny movie. They are funny. They're funny together. The other kids are funny. Classifying it as a comedy absolutely works, but Anderson does not condescend to that relationship at all. Um, and I think that particular musical selection makes for a really interesting counterpoint to that approach. Well, before we draw filmography episode one to its close, do any you have any parting thoughts on Bottle Rocket, Rushmore, and or Moonrise Kingdom? I was really glad to watch these three films in particular and to sort of, I guess by the nature of this podcast, look at the way that they compare and contrast. And, you know, you see things like Bottle Rocket and, and um, Owen Wilson's sort of rigorous planning. And obviously that's so reflective of Moonrise Kingdom and Sam and Susie's similar meticulous planning. And then, like I mentioned, I think the, the Rushmore sort of father-son, weird father-son, not real father-son, but, you know, stand-in father-son relationship is kind of reflected in Moonrise Kingdom as well. They just, they speak to each other in interesting ways and speak to Anderson's evolution as a filmmaker in interesting ways and yeah it was a cool i really liked looking at these three films in particular um by separating them out in this way i agree i feel like anderson is the kind of filmmaker where when you take probably any of his films and sort of put them side by side you're going to find new parallels and new resonances and that was absolutely the case here so i guess thanks for asking us to do this so we could learn things 
thank you for coming on and participating in this. I'm glad this sort of worked. <laughs> I'm really excited to hear that. But that will draw us to our close for the first installment of Filmography. We'll be back with episode two on Friday, March 30th, talking about Wes Anderson, The Dreamer, as seen through The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, Fantastic Mr. Fox, and Isle of Dogs. You can find me online at Consequences Sound and on Twitter at D. Suzanne Mayer. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Caroline Suda, and you can find my writing on the AV Club and elsewhere. You can find me on Twitter at Allison Chu. You can find my work at Consequence of Sound, the AV Club, and RogerEbert.com. And uh, you can hear all three of us, actually, as well as some other rotating guests on another Consequence Podcast Network show, TV Party, where we talk about, I don't know, nice dogs. <laughs> we do occasionally talk about nice dogs, but no, we talk about television and its many wonders and pleasures and disappointments. I'd like to especially thank Matt Solarsites for his book, The Wes Anderson Collection, once more, which served as so much of the genesis of this podcast project. You can find all of us online at our various venues. You can reach out to me personally at dsuzannemayer at gmail.com. Filmography is a production of the Consequence Podcast Network. Check out our expanding roster of music, film, and television podcast programming at consequenceofsound.net. This show was recorded and produced in Chicago, Illinois, and engineered by me, Dominic Suzanne Mayer, and we will see you all next week. Take a moment for yourself. Download Pet Rescue Saga and bring a little color to your day. Just match two or more blocks of the same color to clear the level and save the pets. But moves are limited, so plan them carefully. With eye-catching graphics and colorful gameplay, work your way through hundreds of pet-puzzling levels. From the makers of Candy Crush Saga, King presents Pet Rescue Saga. Download it from the App Store or Google Play.